Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. Please be seated. You are here for another session of Cyber Law and Business Report, broadcast live from the Internet Law Center in the heart of the Silicon Beach here in Santa Monica, California. We have a great show for you today. Thank you for joining us. And what do you think? How's this for a bargain? Would you pay $675,000 to download 30 songs? Um, I wouldn't think so, but that is exactly what the Recording Industry Association and, um, has been able to achieve in court against a, a college student um, from Providence and who has been fighting it with the help of our, our first guest, um, a legendary lawyer named Charles Nesson. And then in the second half, as you know, anything involving the Internet seems to somehow go through Providence, and um, not surprisingly, the um, Netroots Nations convention is coming up and next week, and actually the June 6th, and it will be in Providence as well. We're going to get a sneak preview from that from Netroots Nations Executive Director in the second segment. But first, let me introduce our, our first guest, um, Professor Charles Nesson. He is the um, William Well Professor of Law at Harvard's, Harvard Law School. He's the founder of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society and um, and of the Global Poker and Strategic Thinking Society. He also defended Daniel Ellsberg, which um, some of you may not remember, but was the uh, person who published the Pentagon Papers. And uh, I actually had the opportunity of seeing Mr. Ellsberg speak a couple of years ago, and he um, – he was thanking one of the benefactors for the lawsuit by pointing out that had it not been for the funding of the defense, he would just be getting out of jail. And this would have been 2006, I believe. So, um, um, Professor Nesson, are you with us? I am indeed. Um, so it's, a, it's an honor to be able to speak with such a distinguished lawyer as yourself. And um, 
you really we have quite an unusual situation here with a case where 30 songs can net you $675,000 in damages, which I'm assuming is um, not not including attorney's fees as well. Exactly. And um, so this I, I think for people to understand um, where we are in this case, it, it might be helpful just to kind of walk through the chronology of it. And um, so um, the RIA went after a number of, you know, basically their customers and made offers to them to settle. That, that, that was step one, correct? Yes. Well, you can, you can go back even further to the point where Napster sprang on the world and suddenly all of the music that the industry had distributed on CDs in digital files could be not only ripped onto computers but shared on the net. And suddenly they found themselves with their whole accumulated catalog basically just out there with millions of copies available to anyone. And uh, they tried first to stop Napster, which they succeeded in doing. Um, But then Napster was followed. Napster was vulnerable because it had a central server, and that meant that they knew where it was. They knew they could get at it. Then came a company called Grokster, which had a distributed way of passing uh, peer-to-peer files. And uh, when the industry tried to stop them, they first failed in the district court, and then they failed in the federal court of appeals, which was really like their home territory out there in California. And uh, with no particular prospect of winning that case, they were quite desperate that a whole generation of kids might grow up thinking that it was okay to take music for free. And so they instituted this litigation program utterly unprecedented against non-commercial individual people suing them is not just for copyright infringement but for what's called statutory damages which means that although they don't have to prove any actual damage at all they're entitled to these huge awards and it it never it may not make much sense against commercial infringers it never made any sense against non-commercial people. And and so this process starts then with them going after people, and one of them was your client, um, Joel Tenenbaum. Yes, they brought thousands of kids. They really just uh, sued anybody they could get name and address on, which they did through service providers. It wasn't like any one person stood out or anything like that. It was virtually random. And they brought thousands of lawsuits. Uh, And essentially, from a defendant's point of view, facing uh, federal litigation uh, on a subject that you're completely unfamiliar with, like copyright, and with no ability to hire a lawyer, you genuinely have no choice except to settle. And uh, Joel tried to settle at the beginning. He offered them $500 before they filed the suit. But they turned that down. And How old was Joel? Showed up, when this showed up first in came court. Up. Uh, he found himself with hundred, literally hundreds of other people who were completely 
being taken advantage of in terms of ignorance of the process and no ability to defend. And he was just in, offended himself about the injustice of the whole process that he saw in front of him. And he stuck his heels in. And, and Joel right now, he's a, a graduate student or, or at Boston University? He had been a graduate student. He graduated just last Sunday, uh, and not just from the college. He graduated uh, as a doctorate, uh, a Ph.D. in statistical physics. Interesting. Now, when he first was contacted by the industry, well, where was he in his studies? Was he how, how far back does this go? I think, well, the, the songs he downloaded were 2000 and 2004, uh, and the lawsuit effectively gets started, I think, 2007, uh, something like that. He's, in, he's still a teenager. He's in uh, Goucher College. He went to Goucher College. So he, he was in college when he downloaded these songs, and, and now they're asking him to probably pay over a million dollars once you include attorney's fees. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about how this came about. So um, there was a, a, it went to trial in the federal court in Massachusetts, and, um, and that's when the jury came back with the judgment based on the statutory damages that, is, that were set under the Copyright Act, correct? Yes. And, and so, and this is where you, you came in and, and said, wait a minute, that's, that's excessive, and the judge agreed with you and reduced the damages. Yes, it's, there's, there's some, I can add some complication. He, yes, it, it seems this is where the whole concept of remitter, which is kind of hard to describe on the radio, um, I'm trying to think of what's the best way to, to, to kind of simplify this for the audience. Yeah, well, you, you, you pretty much get it. The, he, he didn't really have a trial on the copyright issues. The judge just ruled that he had violated copyright okay. and then directed the jury to return between $750 and $150,000 for each of the 30 songs that he was charged with downloading. And they came in with, that's a, that's a grand total possible of $4.5 million. They came in at 15% of the maximum at $675,000. The trial judge clearly felt this was excessive and proceeded to reduce it to 67,500, an order of magnitude, 10 times less. And uh, the RIAA appealed. Uh, at the appellate level, they reinstated the $675,000 award that she had declared to be unconstitutional. They said that she shouldn't have reached the constitutional question because she should have first just remitted the amount to some lower amount, and then considered the matter from there. Uh, we objected to that because it just leaves Joel in continuing litigation and tried to get the Supreme Court to step in and say, enough, face, face the constitutional issues. And they, last Monday, declined. So we're back in the district court at this point, where the district judge, a new district judge, will make some ruling as to what number is more appropriate than $675,000. 
And with which case, the recording industry can either accept it or go for a new trial. Exactly. And if you're unhappy with it, you still can appeal that then. Or is that appeal being exhausted by... No, I do think that we can appeal if we're unhappy. Okay. Now, the Supreme Court in 2012 would not hear your petition for review of the excessiveness of damages. But five years earlier, they had considered uh, a petition made by, not by a college student, but by Philip Morris. Yes. Punitive damages were excessive. Yes. And um, and there they they said, and I guess in that case, um, punitive damages were assessed against Philip Morris um, for actions um, by that were um, that harmed not just the plaintiff, but by that harmed other um, parties who weren't involved in litigation. And that was part of the calculus. And the court said that was you couldn't do that. That was excessive. Right. The and, and then and you're making the argument the here that this is the inverse. The that, that you're basically and imposing you a harsh penalty. And those up with damages or with punishment for what was being done to other people. And in essence, that's what you, you believe the RA is doing here. They're well, trying it's, it's to... It's very close. It's like the reverse. It's yes. like they're clearly punishing Joel for conduct that millions of other people did. It's not like Joel took the net down or Joel cost them $9 billion or whatever they say the, the world of peer-to-peer file sharing has cost them. But they have, yes, exactly, effectively piled the whole burden of that on one person to set an example for him. It's like, it's like a death penalty for parking tickets as far as Joel is concerned. And you shouldn't say that too often. People might consider it these days. But um, (laughs) there is Arizona after all. Now, um, now, um, the interesting thing here is that Congress set statutory penalties for copyright infringement. And I think before the Internet, could you even consider the policy? would it even be feasible or even possible to engage in widespread copyright infringement on a non-commercial basis? No. And, and so, I mean, it would seem that the regime that they have in place clearly doesn't con- contemplate, what didn't contemplate the idea that you know, one of the people that it, damages could be assessed against would be someone like Joel. Never, never imagined until the inventive lawyers for the RIAA came up with this campaign and put it across. There's no, no previous precedent of copyright statutory damages against a, non-person, a non-commercial person. The, the judgment against Joel is unprecedented. Now, what has been the reaction from Capitol Hill, for example, on this? You know, I, you know, there's pretty much the RIAA has a very strong lobby up there, but um, is there a view that, that this isn't what we intended? And not that anybody's paying any attention to that I can see. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I would think copyright this is, one... is way down the list of things that anybody's paying attention to at this point. Well, and also, I mean, who, did, did, who would they want to stick their neck out for Joel exactly. um, during, exactly. during election year? You know, they're um, trying to get ACTA being... and SOPA and all those things through. They're not, they're not worried about... 
Well, you see, the RIAA, having initiated this campaign and built it up and carried it through, then took a tremendous amount of heat for coming after their consumers, and eventually they discontinued doing it. And the world has come to think, well, that means it's all over. But the problem is that there's all sorts of lawyers and copyright holders in the wake of the RIAA that are using this draconian structure to move against uh, people who are downloading stuff on the net. So it's movies, it's the pornography industry now that's bringing lawsuits. Yes, they're being very aggressive. And um, so what do you foresee happening in the next round when it goes back to the, the new judge? Well, I don't really have a clear picture at this point. Uh, she was directed by the Court of Appeals to consider whether remitter was an appropriate way to proceed. But she was pretty much effectively told to do it. Uh, if she were to decide, as I think might be correct as a matter of law, that remitter is not appropriate in this situation, that she should just proceed by constitutional ruling and not give the other side the option to litigate infinitely against uh, a a non-commercial person who doesn't have the means to litigate. But nonetheless, she's kind of directed to remit the verdict. So what she remits it down to, that's a question still in contest. And where we go from there, we'll see. Now, it, um, how is Joel funding this, you know, this massive undertaking? Uh, well, I'm afraid it's all pro bono. There's no funding at all. <laughs> literally, I'm literally, the only money that's been raised. Literally, and, but you're going to have to wonder how much mother it, playing how the much harp spending. in Harvard Square. And she raised 256 bucks, which I still have in the top drawer of my desk. <laughs> Otherwise, it's been funded. I funded it. It's, it's, it's something I've been able to do as a teacher right. and as a way of clinically getting not only myself but my students into, into litigation, into the real way in which law is made. It's very eye-opening. In this case, very much so. And do you see any backlash? I mean, is there a downside to the RIA of pursuing this to the, to the fullest? Oh, I think so. I think what we're, what we're seeing is a shift in public attitude towards copyright. I mean, they clearly have used the law to try and hold back the effect of a technological change. And they've done it by interpreting the law and applying it to the extreme. And at the same time, they're screaming to have copyright respected. They're proceeding in such a disrespectable way that it's the hypocrisy that's becoming apparent. I, I think, I think, I think the bubble may break at some point on the idea that copyright is good and freedom is bad. Well, um, with that, we're going to take a short break. This is Ben and Kelly, and we're talking to Charles Nesson about the $675,000 judgment 
for 30 downloaded songs. And we'll be back after these messages with Professor Nesson. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Rise links and web indexes. Take a bow to the largest link map in the world. Majestic SEO. Majestic SEO wields its virtual sword with speed and accuracy to deliver detailed reports of your company's link data and that of your competition. Let Majestic SEO make you your own king of internet marketers and join the crusade of clients and agencies that have chosen the noble choice for link intelligence. MajesticSEO.com Maximize ROI to use your time and let Majestic wield its mighty sword. MajesticSEO.com It's good to be king. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. WebmasterRadio.fm. Get addicted. Get ahead. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly, and we're here with Charles Nesson, who is leading the fight on behalf of Joel Tenenbaum against the Recording Industry Association. Um, his petition for cert, which is a, a request for review by the Supreme Court of a um, First Circuit um, ruling awarding $675,000 in damages to the recording industry for Joel's downloading 30 songs while he was in college um, was denied this week by the Supreme Court, and so he's now returning to the lower court. Um, Professor Nesson, you've been very involved in, in a variety of aspects of um, you know, creating a, a more um, robust cyber debate and using Harvard in particular, the Berkman Center. Uh, you, do you see Harvard or the Berkman Center trying to drive a, a debate on you know, how do we modernize our copyright laws? And if you think and, about the net as uh, a kind of a world, a mathematical set of bits, some of the bits you can use completely free without risk of getting sued, 
some of them you can clearly pay money for, and then there's a whole lot of it that's just corrupted by the imprecision of copyright law. I mean, copyright law basically works on the proposition that if you get sued, you give up. Right. When in doubt, take it out. <laughs> and um, how do we change that? Well, it's a very big question. I think it's been one of the motivating factors in the development of the Berkman Center. I myself am an advocate of a digital registry of legally certified and clarified copyright status, including the public domain. Indeed, indeed, starting with a digital registry of the public domain. And then from there? Then add to it any copyrights which are clear. I've got nothing against copyright. What I've got against is the exploitation of copyright with abusive litigation. And uh, so a registry that contained stuff that people could absolutely rely on, both as free, when they take it as free, and for commercial purposes, when they take it for, um, for, for money. But to be not buying a lawsuit is like a key to clarifying this space. And, and what about, I mean, you guys have been active in, in creating a, a sense of a commons, the sense that there are certain things that are shared in um, public domain. And it seems that as we perpetually extend the copyright um, duration, um, I was actually at a, a symposium at the, uh, the uh, Academy of, you know, of Motion Picture Arts, and there's this con concern that we're going to lose the public domain. Yes. It's a real concern. I mean, when you think about it, uh, the most fundamental border in the cyber environment is between open and closed, the, the open being that which is open to all of us, the public domain, and that which is closed that you have to pay for or is otherwise corrupted, which is copyright. And so it's, it's absolutely the fundamental border. And the problem is that there are lots of big companies with lots of big, powerful lawyers and lobbyists on the closed side. And there's not yet much institutionally organized force on the public side. There needs um, to be. We, we only have a few, few seconds left, but I want to thank you for, for joining us. Um, if, and Joel has a website, correct, that... Um, Joel Fights Back, I believe it is. Yes. Um, JoelFightsBack.com. I do have one question for you. Your, your interest in poker. Could you briefly explain to you what your, your interest in, in poker as, uh, um, as, a, as a realm of study? Uh, for, for me, it might seem odd, but for me, it's actually a way of thinking, and specifically a way of thinking about law. I didn't come to poker through playing it. I came to it through programming it and figuring out the logic of the bluffing algorithms and realizing that this is largely a mirror of the rhetorical poker game that I feel I'm in when I'm litigating. So to me, it's, it's a metaphor 
for competitive strategic play in so many situations that it offers wisdom. Very interesting, Professor. I really want to thank you for joining us. Um, Professor, if people wanted to find more about you or the Berkman Center, what's the best way for them to go? I don't know. Just go to Harvard and search, I guess, something like that. Um, well, I, I have some suggestions if that helps you. Um, the, there's the um, cyber.law.harvard.edu, um, and there's um, you can look up um, Dr. Nesson and the Berkman Center from there. Um, but um, thank you again. It was an honor to have you on the show, and um, please keep us posted. I tell you what, if I had a suggestion, it would be to interview Joel. He's extremely interesting. I'd be very happy to. I thought I'd check with the lawyer first, but uh, I'd be well, happy appreciate to have that. Him. A fellow, a fellow Providencian. I'd be happy to talk to him. Great. <laughs> Thank right, you thanks again. Thanks very much. Um, and so, Dr. Nesson is, is just a legend in this field. And um, let me see if we can bring on our next guest. And um, we are. Um, I'm going to be talking. Uh, once again, uh, bringing in the Providence Connection further up, we're going to be talking about Netroots Nation. And um, um, it's going to happen, um, it's going to be occurring in June 6th in Providence. And um, we're going to be um, talking with Raven Brooks. He's the executive director. And uh, Raven, are you on the air? I think I'm here. Can you see me on your side? I can. Thank you very much. Um, Raven, um, we're just um, starting our second segment, and we we're just talking a little bit about Netroots Nation, and um, like all major things in the net are taking place in Providence. Um, we were just uh, in the first segment. We talked to um, Professor Nesson from the Berkman Center about the um, copyright case involving Joel Tannenbaum. The Supreme Court denied cert on this week um, with the Providence student who's got um, has to pay the RAA six seventy five thousand dollars so um wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I, I would use a different word but this is radio but um <laughs> so um netroot nation has had a, quite a, a story of success and uh, why don't you give us a little bit about its background so uh we started uh really back the the earliest beginnings of where we started was on uh dailycoast.com as part of their community um and it was right after uh, Carrie's loss in 2004. Um, the folks that were part of that community had been working together um, online, uh, you know, doing political work and whatnot for several years, but no one had really ever met uh, in person. And so the initial kind of seed of the idea that eventually became our first event in Las Vegas in 2006. Uh, was to just get together and meet in person and finally put some you know faces to screen names. Um, it ultimately evolved to be something a lot bigger than that. Uh, you know, the first event ended up having uh, something like sixty or seventy panels that were was showcasing experience from uh, you know people's expertise from all over the movement. Um, we had pretty close to the entire democratic power structure at the time there. Um, I think the only person that wasn't there was uh, was Pelosi, but you had presidential hopefuls at the time like Mark Warner, um, Harry Reid was there, Howard Dean was there, Wes Clark was there. So um, it was really kind of a special event that um, then just kind of evolved further past that to 
increasingly include more people in that circle beyond just Daily Coast uh, and become a real way to kind of showcase the power of progressive politics and also help, help uh, you know, project it further, um, mm-hmm. you know, with each successive year. And how has and how is it different um, now that you, you you're one of the the, the quadrennial uh, presidential years? It, it, is it just exponentially um, more intense, greater turnout, um, greater focus, or? Well, I think uh, really like one of the more interesting years was the year that we had the presidential debate on the Democratic side, which was we did that in Chicago in two thousand seven. Uh, and that was um, a huge event, you know, really kind of showcased the power of what people have built online. I think that when we have the next open democratic race, you know, call it like 2015 or so, that'll probably happen and uh, it'll be also uh, really interesting. As far as this year goes, I think that what's sort of on, on showcase is um, people are trying to kind of learn um, from any cycles that have happened you know, previous to this point to see if they can fine tune their, you know, election game, if there's anything they can gain and learn um, from other people. There's a lot of panels uh, talking about things like turnout, um, you know, some of the voting problems that the GOP has kind of thrust upon us, uh, things like that. There are several people that are doing new media stuff uh, at a really high level um, for, you know, campaigns like Elizabeth Warren's campaign, they're going to be coming to share some of their knowledge and, uh, you know, maybe that can translate to other campaigns too. Now, it's interesting. Um, we actually had someone on the show a few months back from campaigns and elections. And it, in politics, you, you, there's a tendency to fight the, you know, the last war. And the problem with politics is the last war was two years ago or if we're talking presidential, four years ago. And that uh, historically, campaigns have not been um, early adapters when it comes to technology. And so I'm, I'm curious how, how you, know, you guys have been received you know, by the, the kind of the, the political professionals. And, and do you see much of a change in, uh, on the political professional front in terms of appreciating the ability and the, what, the, what can be done on the net? Well, I think that the, the key thing there really is that uh, a lot of those folks were skeptical, and in fact, some of them, you know, remain that way um, today. But really, what what matters to that that class of consultants is results. And so, you know, when they see um, a campaign like going all the way back to Howard St- Howard Dean's campaign, who was sort of the original innovator, or looking at Obama's '08 campaign, um, the Obama campaign this year. Uh, which has a bunch of new advanced, you know, things that are going to be interesting or something like Elizabeth Warren's campaign. They look and see, you know, someone performing at an incredibly high level and being able to generate a lot of excitement, respond rapidly, raise money, turn people out. I mean, it's not just online stuff. It's it's literally affecting things that are vital to win a campaign. And once they see that in practice, they're much more open to uh, that being brought into like their suite of tools. But it, you know, in terms of dollars, it you know, the money is still in TV and, and grassroots efforts. I mean, are you seeing a major shift in allocations at all? I think you're going to see that uh, starting with the next cycle. I mean, it's happening 
uh, on the Obama campaign in particular. I mean, if you look at some of the expenditures coming out of the campaign, they're spending a large portion of their advertising budget online. I mean, you know, probably I think the last report that came out in March, it was something like 50 percent of their budget was online based stuff. And so, you know, again, that's going to flow down and it'll take a cycle to kind of hit everybody else. But you're going to see a lot more people trying to do stuff online, uh, realizing that you can be a lot more targeted. You can be a lot more action driven uh, than if you're just blasting someone with TV. Now, um, you know, your organization is is progressive organization. Uh, what is the state of organization of your, your counterpart on the on the right? Um, I know when what when you were in Pittsburgh, didn't they try to have a competing conference in the same city? Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's they're run by you know a very well funded foundation, um, and they uh, have decided this year not to go um, to Providence. They're I think in Las Vegas or something. Um, I get the two confused myself, but yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, they they you know initially kind of were following us around to capitalize on the media attention we got. I don't really know how successful they'll be this year. I mean, we wish them you know luck and everything, but I think that you know on its own, it's not going to be something that's going to generate a lot of excitement. Well, was part of um, you know the organization driven by Breitbart, and will his loss affect them? Yeah, I mean, he was uh, a perennial, you know, big speaker. I mean, that and, you know, brought a lot of attention and promotion to it. And, um, you know, like a lot of things on the right, uh, they try and copy um, institutions and tools on the left, but it ultimately doesn't tend to work um, because they're not uh, really that grassroots driven or bottom, you know, bottom up driven. I mean, you can look at just the graveyard of stuff that's tried to copy things like move on or act blue or whatever. And, and there's, you know, tens of organizations that have started that have failed. But the irony is it's interesting hearing you, you say that because, um, you know, there was a time you know, before the internet in the nineties when we were playing, you know, uh, our team was playing catch up um, in particularly with respect to direct mail and, you know, Richard Vigory and, you know, getting the, Getting the jump uh, on that, you know, Democrats were about a decade behind in catching up on that. Yeah, we were, and I think I think that you know initially online was attractive because it was it was a way to kind of be scrappy and to get around the gatekeepers that existed and and get you know out there, um, and that allowed some candidates like Dean that probably you know, would have gotten washed out a lot earlier than they did um, to, to have a chance. Uh, or, you know, the congressional elections that have been won by, you know, raising small dollar donations. And I think just culturally, um, progressives are, are better wired to be receptive to this. So um, in terms of the actual event that will happen in Providence, why, why Providence, just out of curiosity? So pro- we, we picked Providence when we, we had wanted to be um, on the East Coast for a while. Um, Providence came under our radar. We actually were looking at going over there in 2011 instead of Minneapolis, but uh, there was a dispute with the hotel. The uh, The owner of the Westin was actually trying to bust the union there. Oh, that wouldn't so, be good, yeah. Yeah, so we, 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 for the first time, kind of publicly spoke out against that, did a petition and a campaign and you know, worked local media to try and stop that. We never really talk about where we're going before we announce it. Um, 
it ultimately didn't work out in time for us to select them for 2011, obviously. But over the course of the following, you know, uh, several months, um, they were able to get a contract. Uh, you know, we've heard from um, everyone there locally that it was really, it was really a big help getting involved because we applied uh, media pressure and also pressure from local elected officials who very much wanted this event, you know, creating economic activity in their city. Um, so that really helped the workers get a fair deal. That's good to hear. Um, the people who want to go, uh, why would people, if, if, if you're listening, you should attend this event because why? Well, it's really uh, the best place just to connect with uh, the online progressive movement. I mean, it's it's got... Uh, 70 panels that are on every single issue you can think of where you can geek out and you can hear case studies <laughs> and all of that. It's got 30 training sessions where you can kind of get um, inspired and trained on this stuff. There's some really great keynote speakers. I mean, some of the big ones that we have are Elizabeth Warren's going to be there. Um, Paul okay. Krugman's going to be there. Uh, Van Jones will be there, um, just to name a few. Uh, and it's really just kind of the the hallway concept of it. I mean, there's been so much stuff that's just started because people's brains are, you know, just inspired by all the stuff that they're seeing and that they're at the bar late at night and they start talking about how to solve um, various social and political problems. And that's how organizations get started. People get hired, um, projects get started, um, and it's, it's led to a lot of really great things. So if now, you're an activist, you really should be there. And is Howie Klein going to be there for Act Blue? Uh, I believe he is going to be there, yeah. He usually attends, uh, and I don't know for 100% fact, but um, he usually does attend. Okay, we're going to take a, a short break, um, but um, stay tuned, stick around. We'll be back, and we'll um, wrap up, and we'll hear the rest of all the things happening on Netroots Nation and coming up in Providence on June 6th after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. How far do your ads reach? You don't have to fly around the world for the right consumers and clients to find your business. What you need is profit through performance. Location 3 Media helps you to increase your brand's findability and performance. Let Location 3 Media help you create efficient and effective online marketing campaigns that fit your needs and get you results. We know every click starts a journey. Where will your brand be on the path? Visit Location3Media.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. MySEOTool.com is your all-in-one SEO management resource. MySEOTool.com makes it easy to optimize and oversee all of your SEO efforts. Line-by-line -line detailed reports help you identify any problems and show you how to fix them. 
MySEOTool.com is completely automated. Once you use it, you will see a rise in your search rankings and traffic. Try MySEOTool risk-free today. Go to MySEOTool.com. MySEOTool.com. Cyberspace, the final frontier. These are the voyages of your new business enterprise. It's ongoing mission to explore strange new domains, to seek out new sites and new monetizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. WebmasterRadio.fm. So logical. You'll go out of your Vulcan mind. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. We have Raven Brooks, and we're talking about the upcoming Netroot Nation. Now, one thing that's been interesting in the Internet um, is not necessarily specific to Political campaigns that we, uh, you know, they are related, is the reaction to SOPA and um, CISPA. Is is that something you guys will be covering? Yeah, we have uh, we have a panel on that, and then also some other um, interesting kind of topics, diving a little deeper into that, like uh, mobile broadband and things like that. So it's definitely going to be there. Now, um, next week is the FTC conference on um, disclosures that um, that should be should be made. On in the mobile um, type platforms, um, you know they've already laid out guidelines for what disclosures should be made, and you know for commercial ads in um, the online space, and they're trying to update them. Now at the same time, in our show next week, we're actually going to have the um, the head of the California um, um, Fair Political Practices Commission, and she's advocating um, for some sort of disclosures in the blogosphere, um, political blogosphere, for those who are paid. Um, bloggers and what do you what are your thoughts on that well i think you know it's it's something that i don't feel like is necessary uh i think it could also uh be a little bit chilling and sort of you know get the the playing field to be on level because it's one of these kind of things that's not required of journalists who you know aren't you know paid but they're they're sometimes compensated in other ways i think you know really the the thing that their goal is they want to make sure that uh, they know what uh, campaigns are spending money on. And I think the the way that you do that is you put the onus on the campaigns to keep good records about where their money's coming in from and what vendors they're paying. And you kind of leave it at that because, you know, sometimes bloggers may consult for a campaign. Um, a lot of them can't. Uh, uh, you know, fully support themselves with advertising revenue. But if you're simply consulting for a campaign, that shouldn't affect, you know, everything that you're doing, you know, with your journalist hat on, with your editorial hat on, with your activist hat on. So it's just, it's something that's going to get really tricky and I think uh, could pose more of a chilling effect to bloggers. Well, in, in the commercial space, I mean, bloggers are, are, are supposed to disclose if they have, if they receive compensation. Um, you know, in in certain contexts, you know, when they're making reviews of products and things of that nature, where it would be material to the you know the person reading that um, to know whether or not that person's paid, and so it it seems to be just an extension, really, of the, the principle that's applied in the commercial setting. 
Well, it tends to be uh, more of an editorial policy, I think, right? I mean, you know, some some bloggers do that, some don't. Uh, you know, if you're, I, I think it's usually pretty clear from someone's writing and their work as an activist, you know, who they're supporting. It's not like it's it's a hidden thing. The the more nefarious thing that will ultimately be, you know, outside of this is if you have, you know, someone operating from out of state that's working, you know, for a campaign in state. I mean, that's that's going to be the kind of similar dark money situation. And that person, you know, could be trolling comment forums. They could be creating Twitter accounts. They could be, you know, creating anonymous kind of Tumblr style blogs or something. And they're going to be outside of that, and that's really, I think, what the you know FFIPC is kind of looking to to track down. But their rules aren't going to be sufficient to do that. Now, are you guys somewhat you know is the blogosphere the anecdotes of Citizens United? I you know I think that the anecdote to Citizens United it, it tends to me in, in my view to be a little overblown. I mean, some stuff changed. You allowed you know, people to really take the cap off of spending. But I think the really insidious stuff where we actually really get defeated is are things that people aren't really even talking about. Um, a great example to really highlight this and bring it into focus is uh, if, if you look at, uh, there's a recent article in Rolling Stone by Matt Tybee about um, the Dodd-Frank bill and basically all the stuff that happens after it passed. So, there's been a lot of debate and people can debate a lot about whether that bill was strong enough, you know, whether Congress, you know, put little favors into industry, you know, whether it could have been stronger. But outside of that, once you get into the regulatory apparatus, if you look at what uh, Wall Street's been able to do to delay, to sue, to kill certain parts of the bill, to, to make parts of it completely the opposite of you know, how the law was written as far as how the rule gets implemented. That's really the challenge, I think. And I think bloggers can play a little bit of a role there by bringing um, additional attention to things like that and running campaigns. Um, and it's not even really so much the money in the system. It's just the fact that when you pass something, it doesn't even stay passed. It's not guaranteed that it'll stay passed. You know, I always tell people, you know, just from you know, having lived in Washington, that, um, and I was there during the Reagan-Bush years and some the first half of Clinton, um, it, it seems to be much easier to run in a Republican administration than a Democratic administration because the Republican administration, a lot of it is just about um, shutting down or you know, slowing down government. Whereas the Democrats have to um, not only they have to turn um, basically an ocean liner back on and then get it to change course, it just seems that it's a much more difficult thing to do, and you, and you have the problem of uh, more immediate expectations of having just you know come to power. Right. I mean, the the Republican theory of governance. I mean, you can go to you know Grover Norquist's uh, famous line, which is that yes. you know he wants government to be small enough where it can be drowned in a bathtub. And so it's really easy to do that. I mean, you can cut funding for things, you can shut things down, you can create, you can reduce services, you can easily feed the foreign policy stuff that that they want to work on, uh, and they you can easily pass laws that. Um, reward a select few, but the challenge that's really hard to do, which is what Democrats always go for, is how do you help massive numbers of people with problems that are 
kitchen table problems that are affecting them every day. And that's really hard to do. Now, um, hard to do, Raven, is um, are you guys sold out for this upcoming conference? We are not quite yet, but I think we're on track for having a record year. We had about 2,500 last year, and we're expecting you know, definitely more than that this year. So it's really, uh, it's really going to be an exciting event. So if people want information, they should go to? Uh, you just want to head out to netrootsnation.org, and that's spelled N-E-T-R-O-O-T-S-N-A-T-I-O-N.org. Uh, and you'll find speakers, the agenda, a place to register, um, all of that information out there. Great. Raven, thank you very much, and I look forward to hearing how it went. Um, enjoy my, my childhood city. And um, next week we'll be broadcasting live from Georgetown University Law Center. Um, we'll be there for the FTC workshop on the advertising disclosures in the mobile setting. Um, we'll have some a live update from um, the workshop, and then we'll be talking to um, Ann Ravel from the California Political Practices Commission. So um, thank you for joining us. This has been Bennett Kelly um, with the Internet Law Center. Quarters adjourned. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.